one of the things I'm doing with my crumb time is I have my crumb time list, which is just a list of different things that I've thought for a moment. Oh, I'm curious about this. And instead of going directly to uh, read about that thing, I just put it on the list. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Your ego fears your art, because if you follow your art, you will self-actualize. You will become your true self, but to do so, you will experience failure, rejection, and fear. So says my guest today, David Cadavy. David also says your art is the best expression possible of who you really are. David has spoken at South by Southwest, TEDx, and his writings have been featured in The Observer, The Huffington Post, Inc. Magazine, Quartz McSweeney's, Upworthy, Lifehacker, and many other places. David is the creator and host of the Love Your Work podcast. He's the author of multiple books, two of which I read and loved, Mind Management, Not Time Management, Productivity When Creativity Matters, and The Heart to Start, Stop Procrastinating and Start Creating. Just the title is great advice already, isn't it? He's also written a book called Design for Hackers. In this episode, we cover a lot about creativity, about productivity, about living a meaningful life. We discuss creating something David calls a curiosity management system. We also talk about using something David calls crumb time to learn and to create more than you otherwise might. We explore how David escaped being born in the wrong place, suburban area in Nebraska, surrounded by people who didn't understand him and with whom he didn't really connect, and how he managed to create a fulfilling life of creativity and contribution and create a life in Columbia, where he lives now. I believe that David's life is evidence that taking small steps can be a significant part of creating a great life for yourself. It don't have to be these massive leaps and transitions with tiny steps. We also discussed the struggle that many artists and creators have of figuring out what their unique message is, exactly what their voice is, who their audience is, and how David has approached these things. We also explore the idea of writing as a process of teaching ourselves and learning what we need to know. And the fact that writing is often not a linear process and how to use that fact to your advantage. David also breaks down what I think is an absolutely game-changing model of creativity called the seven mental states of creative work, that these can help us to better understand and leverage the different mental states we all find ourselves in as we go throughout each day so that we can use them to uh, complete our creative projects with less stress, more fun in shorter times, earn more money, make a bigger difference, you know, just little things like that, all of which he details, by the way, in uh, that book that I mentioned, the mind management, not time management. So we cover a lot. Uh, David is one of a very small number of creators that I support personally on Patreon. I think his insights are legit and the care and attention he puts into his work is first class. You can learn more about David and his work at kdv.co. You can find him on Instagram or Twitter at Kadavy, that's K-A-D-A-V-Y. And you can subscribe to his Love Mondays newsletter, which I highly recommend. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, David Cadaby. David, welcome to the School for Good Living. 
Thank you so much for having me. Brilliant. It is an honor to be here. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah. I'm glad you are. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? Hmm. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of different things it could be about. It could be about nothing. I mean, that's, um, that's probably what I believe most is that it's about, it's about nothing. You can make it about whatever you want, that it's meaningless. And some people find that, uh, to be, uh, nihilistic or depressing or something, but I find it actually quite liberating because it means, well, you can just create your own meaning. And, and then oftentimes the next question is, well, but that, I mean, what if your idea of what's meaningful is like torturing people or something like, well, it's not. So yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, uh, and I think that for, for most people it, it, it wouldn't be. Um, and so I think that, uh, for me, it is about enjoying my time here, uh, doing something that, uh, lets me be the person that I want to be while at the same time making something, and then hopefully that ends up also being useful to other people, which I think just by natural extension of uh, the universality of a lot of uh, what it means to be human, that just kind of happens naturally. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And uh, when you opened up with it could be about nothing. I, I wondered, is this just a big Seinfeld episode? <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. I it popped in my head as well. I'm a gigantic yeah. Seinfeld fan. I, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much always one thought away from something Seinfeld related. Yeah. And when you mentioned about creating, um, somebody suggested to me once, and this had not occurred to me on my own, but someone had said, if we are in fact made in the image of our creator, and who knows, right? But if we are, then necessarily we must also be creators. I was like, that's actually kind of a cool thought. I, I think that it is the natural, I, th I think of it as a natural state to be, uh, to create things. And I think that it's something that a lot of us have lost touch with. I've seen a really unsettling kind of anti-productivity movement lately, where I think after the pandemic and our, you know, after the really, really difficult part of the pandemic, at least. And, and, um, people getting really stressed out, uh, and starting to ask why am I working so hard? Um, there has been a little bit of a backlash where now there's these, you know, books that are out that are all about the shortness of our lives and, and, um, making these, uh, observations, as if it should be uh, rel relevatory that that our lives are short and that um, maybe the pursuit of material things isn't uh, the th the thing that we should be uh, trying to do, and then by extension of that, being productive is somehow kind of the enemy. I, I find that really unsettling and misguided, and I do hope that people come to the next level of that, which I think is that if, if you are able to do nothing, if you are able to take a pay cut to do the things that you want to do or to make your life less, life less stressful, I, I think that even if you try to do nothing at some point, you find yourself with this internal motivation to create something, to do something, to do something that's meaningful to you or that's meaningful to other people. 
uh, that is just uh, the natural human state. But that's also me going a lot off of what I experienced myself. Yeah. Well, I do think that there is um, an innate, uh, maybe a need even, uh, a, an imperative for us to grow, to connect, to shit, to serve even to, and to create. And this is, I mean, it's just a theory, right? But um, I know you've spent a long time, a large part of your life now, at least the last 15 years, being a creator, a creative person. And uh, one of the things you've created is the Love Your Work podcast. And I listened to a few episodes recently. And one of the things I heard was you said that after 15 years, even though this is your full-time focus and that you're able to support yourself and live uh, many people's dream, probably to live abroad and, and to have people read your ideas and for them to make a difference for people that you still feel you haven't made it as a creative. <laughs> will you, will you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different definitions of having made it. Uh, I think early on, I would have thought that having made it would be like, oh, I'm making $2,000 a month, you know, uh, which now I'm making more than that. And, and also then you ask the question, well, where is it coming from? And there's been these various layers throughout my journey where at first I just, I just wanted to get the, you know, bare minimum amount of money to, to get by. And I would do that. I wasn't super discerning about where that money would come from, whether it was freelancing or whether it was some kind of passive revenue th thing. I, for, for a period of time was paying my bills, uh, off of a, an online dating advice blog that I had written under a pseudonym, which while it was fun and it was, uh, interesting to me, it wasn't, I didn't want to be, I didn't want that to be like a big part of my identity part of why I wrote it under a pseudonym. And so bit by bit, as I've gotten uh, pieces of financial security along the way, um, often coming along with where did that come from? How close to, was that to my core or, 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 or what's most important to me? Um, as I've sort of moved up that hierarchy, there's... I continue to feel as if I haven't made it in some way. And then there becomes this new goal that I uh, want to achieve before I feel like I've made it. And now I've finally gotten to a point where I'm making a, uh, a, a solid income off of books that I wrote that are, uh, that, that really do come from about as deep of, uh, from about as deep within me as they, as they could, as they could be, or at least that's what I think right now. Um, and I still have come to that realization, like, I guess when that first started to happen, um, I, I realized, oh, I actually sort of feel, uh, a bit of an emptiness here. Like, oh, I, I've gotten to this. I've, I've worked so hard for this and, now what? And mm -hmm. so I guess I've come to the realization that, oh, that I, there is no making it that I always want to feel as if I'm, I'm not making it. I always, if I reach some goal, there needs to become, uh, some other goal, whether that is financial or whether that is just continuing to explore myself, uh, that I, um, th that I'm going to want to achieve. That's actually one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I got the email from you because you were talking about 
uh, that, that you come from this billionaire family and that you, if I remember right, that you felt very uh, lost or you were kind of adrift and stuff. And that's actually been something that I have for a very long time thought to myself, like, that would be awful. <laughs> you know, it was like, I can't imagine, uh, you know, having uh, so much uh, financial resources at my disposal that uh, there's zero motivation uh, you know, there, there's zero need, there's zero financial drive there. Um, I, I, I feel like I've, it, it's been nice that I've had a bit of a financial drive. I don't, uh, money isn't super important to me. I have, I'm, I'm still not making a, a huge income, but I'm quite happy. And I don't really can't think of things that I would want to do with a lot more money. Um, but I've been through that journey bit by bit by bit by bit, where at the same time, I'm also like exploring myself internally rather than just kind of like having that, that ground just, uh, disappear from underneath my feet or not be there to begin with. Um, and while meanwhile, being in a world where everybody's pretty much motivated by, um, their, their financial needs. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, if you don't, know if you have any comments on that. Yeah. <clears throat> no, thank you for, for sharing that. Well, yeah, a few things that come up for me, uh, in what you're saying. Um, I thought that you and I were probably kindred spirits when I heard you say on the 200th episode of your podcast, when you said, okay. I just want to read about the things that interest me, have conversations, use it all to inform my understanding of the world and share what I've learned. Right. And nothing in there is, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be a celebrity. I want to have, you know, these incredible vacations or whatever. There wasn't anything material in that. And, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I loved, and I still do, I love games of all kinds. And I had a video game that I would play. And in the game, it was, uh, it was like one of these role-playing games where you were these care, you would create a party and you'd go throughout this world and, you know, achieve these quests and so forth. And I found a cheat code that gave me infinite gold. <laughs> and instantly it destroyed so much of the fun of the game because the challenge sure, was yeah. gone. And now you could just walk into a shop and buy the best equipment and like all this. And that really did teach me something about there is value in adversity, right? And now living life, there's many forms of adversity, right? From yeah. in Maslow's hierarchy and the basic survival needs to, you know, the security and, and then the psychological and higher, um, higher order needs, if you will. But yeah, what you're saying, um, it really, it really resonates. And at the same time, it's like Crimea river, right? Because there are definitely people that experience that kind of challenge, a challenge that comes from wealth, but it's not the kind of, I mean, it's interesting to me that our society both simultaneously, uh, reveres and, and reviles wealth. And it's, oh, if somebody's a billionaire, they must've done something really despicable to get that, or they don't deserve it. It should be redistributed. And at the same time, we esteem those people almost above anything. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, I, but that connection okay, yeah. of creativity and service, we all want that even if it never comes with wealth, I think. Well, I mean, I think that's part of what makes the, that idea scary to me is that simultaneously uh, you, you feel nobody wants to hear you complain about anything because they figure that you can't have any problems because yeah, you know, like the amount of money that you have or something, which is like such an right. arbitrary thing. Like there's so many people who, uh, were billionaires that are dead now. Right. Cause right. that's where we're all going. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's some billionaires who are living curiously long now, but, uh, and, and who knows what we'll, what we'll discover, but, uh, it, it, it's just one little aspect of somebody's existence. Yeah, no, no doubt. And something too, and I suspect just from what I've read in, in your books, uh, about some of your experiences. And I, I want to ask you about how you escaped the beige period. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you about that in just uh, a moment. Yes. But, um, you know, I, one of the things that I've learned, I, I think pretty much everyone in a Western industrialized so-called developed country with any level of, you know, standard of living, what they would call a standard of living has learned that material things will never bring us lasting fulfillment. We know that it's not a, a jacket you can buy or a car you can buy, or even a home or any of that that's going to satisfy you long-term. That took me a while to learn. But from there, then I thought, oh, it's experiences. And we hear this, right? Like prioritize experiences and, and that whole thing that the four-hour work we kicked off of like many retirements and live, live for the now. And that sounds good. And that's probably um, an alternative, maybe a more fulfilling alternative to accumulating a bunch of stuff, but even experiences never last and they're not inherently fulfilling. Then I thought, oh, it's knowledge. I'll just go travel the world and learn as much as I can, you know, and, and then I learned that knowledge is just another form of accumulation. So now, as far as I can tell, it's like, how can we deepen, like, how can we deepen our experience and expand our awareness? And it's just a different game. I'm sure this will just be the thing <laughs> at some point I'll look back and be like, yeah, I was wrong about that too, but who well, knows? That, that, that's really interesting because, uh, um, I have, I certainly value experiences, uh, but I also see that I think I see the dark side of that being somebody who lives abroad and I uh, encounter a lot of digital nomads or nomads who are traveling the world and who have a, a very high experience bias. And, uh, for the most part, they're pretty happy people, but sometimes you can feel the sort of sense of disconnection there or dissatisfaction when you realize well, you can only get so much from experiences. Uh, then there's knowledge as well. And this is something that I think about for myself. Like when I was a kid, I remember I loved Encyclopedia Brown. Oh, yeah. Uh, th there was a show with Fred Savage, uh, the, the guy from the Wonder Years, and uh, there were the books. And I wasn't a huge reader, but I read some books uh, on that. And I, and I, and I just like, thought it was so cool to just know everything. <laughs> and, and sometimes I look at myself now and I realize I've got, Oh, I've got this, uh, Zettelkasten note-taking method that I write about. I, I, I read a lot. I've got my database of notes and stuff. And, uh, so I do, I'm often asking myself, all right, like to what degree are you, do you just want to be seen as smart? Mm -hmm. Because I, I think that that is a danger. Um, to what degree are you escaping into the pursuit of, of knowledge? Mm -hmm. um, and actually, even I've been thinking about this, this idea of curiosity management, where I was searching within myself and I realized sometimes I go through these periods where I'm just not reading enough. I need to read this article. I need to read this book. I need to learn about this thing and that thing and this thing. And I and when I search underneath it, I realize like, no, there's a little bit of an, a not enoughness that's driving mm -hmm. that. And it, that's where I started to create a, a bit of a system to, uh, that I'm just kind of toying with now where I'm actually capturing every time I am curious about something, 
I'm capturing it into a system where I can uh, then engage, engage with it appropriately, appropriate to my level of curiosity, because I think that my previous strategy was, I'm curious about something like, oh, I, I want to know something uh, about Marie Curie. Okay, uh, let's go to Amazon, let's buy a book about Marie Curie and start reading that. And then you've got like 200 books. Yeah. And instead now I like put it on the list. And then when I've got a little bit of time, I go read the Wikipedia page. How much more curious am I about this thing? Okay, well, that like put it in the queue there, and I found that I've gotten a lot, a lot less of that sort of um, re- residual. Uh, I guess I call it surplus curiosity that comes from that feeling of not enoughness that uh, can be a result of somebody who is in a mode of valuing knowledge. Mm. I've never heard of a curiosity management system, but I like that. <laughs> Yeah, I have from, uh, I know we both are students of um, David Allen, right? And uh, there's the someday maybe, I think that comes from him, the someday maybe list. Absolutely. That's kind of my curiosity management is I'll just be like, maybe I'll buy that book or look at that person. What do you, what, what tool do you use now? How do you, what's your curiosity management system look like? Uh, so I use what I, um, I call a crumb time list. Um, and then again, this is another concept that, I've been thinking about a lot is crumb time is these little pockets of time of sort of un- indefinite size and shape that sort of break off and fall on the floor throughout our day. We like go to the dentist, we're sitting in the dentist's uh, waiting room and we only have a couple minutes. So naturally what we do is we just give away that time. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I like the idea of it calling it crumb time is that we think of crumbs as insignificant. It sounds like an insignificant thing, but mm-hmm. when you put crumbs together, uh, they're actually part of very significant things. They're, bakers have called something a crumb structure. Uh, I didn't realize this until I did a little research on the web that's called a crumb structure. That's like the structure of the crumbs, the, the sort of mixture of air and pastry that make up the the cake or whatever and Mm. then in agriculture uh, a soil has a crumb structure when it has like the right amount of um, moisture content so it's a it's a good environment for uh, plants to take root for microorganisms that uh, sort of feed the plants and keep the soil healthy for all that stuff to to survive and so uh, we think of crumbs as insig- this, this crumb time is insignificant. So we open up the phone, we, we open up uh, Twitter or Instagram, and that's fine if that's what you want to be doing. But a lot of times we're just giving away that time because we don't feel like we could do anything useful with it. And so yeah. one of the things I'm doing with my crumb time is I have my crumb time list, which is just a list of different things that I've thought for a moment. Oh, I'm curious about this. And instead of going directly to uh, read about that thing, I just put it on the list. Uh, I think a lot of people use like a read later app, like Instapaper or uh, or, or Pocket. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, one, I think that it should be hard to save something that you want to read. Uh, the hard part is actually being able to read all the stuff that you saved. So there should be a little yeah. bit of friction in that direction. Uh, I think, and then additionally, I, I think that uh, subjects are more important than particular articles, right? So if there's a subject that I want to learn about, it's not necessarily that the, there's a particular article that I want to read about. I want to, I want to duck, duck, go it and kind of see what's there. And probably the first place I'm going to go is Wikipedia. 
And then, um, and it, that's just a text file. And that's just a list on uh, an app that I call have called Drafts. And that is something that if I'm at a restaurant waiting for a friend to show up, oh, I'll just quickly open up uh, my crumb time list and see, oh, what, what looks interesting here and go mm-hmm. search for that thing. And I'll do a little bit of reading about it. And if I'm just like, if I can feel myself getting really interested in it, I'm, you know, then I'll go uh, download the Kindle sample or buy the book. And then I'll probably, but I'll probably ask myself, how much more interested in, in this am, am I? And, and think, well, not a whole lot. And so, and then I'll put it on like a, I've already read this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then oftentimes it leads to other things that I'm curious about certain footnotes and, and things like that. So that's the way my system looks right now. Right on. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. So as, uh, as I mentioned, just a couple minutes ago, um, you share in your, in your books, um, this experience you had, and it relates directly to the best blog post you've ever written, which also happened to be the worst blog post you've ever written. <laughs> but I know <laughs> yeah. that happened in a period of your life where things were monochromatic experientially, or maybe literally, but when you talk about what was the beige beige period and, and how did you escape it? Beige period. I love this. I, I, I love that. I've never, I've never thought of it that way. Like the rose period, the blue period, the beige period. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was, I was born and raised in Nebraska and I was uh, born in the wrong place and a suburban lifestyle. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, even growing up, like, why do I have to hang out with the people who just happen to live close to me? <laughs> <laughs> Like, why are these it's people your karma, man? Hasn't this not... question been answered many times, thousands of oh, years? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, and uh, I, I, I don't share interest with these people. They think that I'm weird because I'm interested because of what I'm interested in. And it's I just because you love like to that. stay in your room and draw all day. And they were I love to stay in my room, I draw, in my room and draw, play with magnets, like, uh, you know, uh, collect bugs. Um, you know, I, I wasn't into Nebraska football mm-hmm. enough, I think. Uh, so then after college, uh, I ended up back in Nebraska against, against my will kind of, because I, I wanted to move to just any big city. Like, but, you, but know. you had left for college for a while or and I had left to college, but I, 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 yeah, I went to college in a first in a school in the middle of Nebraska uh, which was turned out to be a big mistake. Um, spent three semesters there. Then I went to the school in the middle of Iowa, which surprisingly was uh, much better. But I was still I was I was a scaredy pants. I was just so scared to uh, go very far from home. Uh, and then through that experience of going to that school in the middle of Iowa, I did get to study abroad in Rome, which is a fantastic experience and privilege. And it was, it was wonderful and it busted my brain wide open. And, and then after knowing how big the world was and how, uh, many different ways there must be to live, just having the awareness of that and realizing I wanted to uh, explore that I ended up back in Nebraska. I wanted to go to any big city I wanted to go to San Francisco or New York or Chicago or Seattle or even Minneapolis to me was like, that would be a, a, a big welcome change. But I had a graphic design degree. Uh, that wasn't a huge hot commodity in 2002. 
Uh, and I couldn't get a job in those places without living there. And I couldn't live in those places with, without the job. And I also didn't have the guts to just pack up and move and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, especially given the kind of upbringing that I had, which, which was, which was fiscally conservative in that, you know, you've got to have a job. You can't just like go to some place. And by the way, it's pretty hard to get an apartment when you don't have a job. Um, and so I went back in Nebraska and I got a job there and was working there for a few years, uh, in, in an office, uh, job. I was in a, um, in a really toxic relationship, uh, and, uh, and everything was beige. So my cubicle was beige and then my car was beige and the carpet on my apartment was beige and the walls of my apartment were beige. And it was just kind of this, this beige existence. And I was pretty, pretty miserable, especially after the toxic relationship, uh, ended and, um, and I didn't want to be in Nebraska anymore. Didn't really know how to get out somewhere else and didn't have the guts to just throw it all away and, and go. Uh, I started a blog. <laughs> so I was really intimidated by all these blogs that I was following online, these Douglas Bowman, these different web design blogs. Um, and I really wanted to have a blog of my own, but uh, they were they all looked so great. I didn't know how I could create something like that. So I just went to, remember there was this night, I think it was, I, I was st staying at the office late and I went to blogger.com and I saw, oh, wow, you could just create a blog and it'll have all the, you know, the category thing on the side and then, you know, maybe a calendar widget or something on there. Oh, like there's tools that just do this. You don't have to code it all by hand, uh, which was the way that I thought that maybe you had to do it. And so I remember telling myself like, okay, just get this started. Just get this started. Just get this started. I'm like, okay, what's, I have to come with a name of the blog. Okay. My David Cadavy's blog. <laughs> and, uh, and then after I set it up, I realized, oh, well, you've got to write a blog post. <laughs> so I, I did that and I didn't know what to write about. So I just wrote about what I was experiencing that moment, which is basically, okay, I'm trying out a blog. I, I'm just going to do this because sometimes I'm a perfectionist and sometimes that paralyzes me. So I'm just going to barf this out and clean it up later. And it's still up there. If you search for Tadavi, my first blog, you'll find it. It's about 130 words. It, it has no structure to it. There's a misspelling in it. <laughs> Which the, technology, the technology didn't exist at the time to find misspellings. I'm, I'm kidding. It probably, <laughs> probably did. And, uh, and it, it's up there, but it was just me getting myself started. And I'm so glad that I did because uh, it was with the help of that blog that I got out of Nebraska and moved to Silicon Valley. It's with the help of that blog that I uh, got my first book deal. It's with the help of that blog that I got connected uh, with a company that sold to Google that I was an advisor to. Uh, I owe so many things to that blog. I've written you know, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, maybe a thousand, some blog posts, only a few have been big hits, but those have, have uh, changed my life. And so um, that was uh, how I got out of the beige period. Wow. That's, that's remarkable. And uh, that thing about, okay, so I had this really horrible blog post, but I, 
but that's also how I got on with my life kind of thing. That's how I got onto, you know, things. There's, there's a pretty big jump there. Yeah. I but, feel like I was just kind of, you know, I, 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 I was miserable. I was, uh, insecure. I wasn't getting the kind of support in my life and the people around me and the community around me that that made me feel like I belonged and that what I felt inside uh, was was as correct as it felt to me. Mm. Uh, you know, about wanting to create things, about wanting to do something that was on my own. I feel like everything I got from the world around me was pushing against that. And what I saw on the internet was the exact opposite of that. And so I was just kind of like, you know, sending out my message in a bottle, wow. uh, hoping that somebody would, uh, that it would reach somebody. And it, and it did. And, and it, and it did. And, you know, like I said, one of the things that happened was that I ended up getting discovered by this, startup in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, they moved me out there and that got me out of Nebraska. And, uh, yeah, that, that was one of the things that came from that. Wow. And that was, was, one of the other, one, was one of the other things, the, like the collaboration of the work you did with Dan Ariely. That's right. Yeah. Um, that, came from a blog post that I wrote called My Management, Not Time Management, which also happens to be the name of my latest book. And um, that was another just, that was just an email out of the blue from his business partner, uh, which was actually kind of a funny story because I was busy at the time. And I got this email that was the type of email that you respond to. It was like, hi, I'm a Stanford professor. I've sold a company to Google you know, I think that we should talk. I've read this blog post and I'm like, ah, I'm busy. I, let's, can we <laughs> talk in a few weeks? And, you know, fortunately they were, uh, uh, persistent. And, uh, I remember them saying, yeah, I remember him, him saying, you know, I think that you'll find that we were meant to work together. Wow. And, uh, and then we, yeah, we did work together on that. And I was an advisor to, uh, Timeful, which was a company all about, um, uh, kind of, rethinking the calendar in a way that is sensitive to your energy fluctuations and Google ended up buying that company. And that was That's a surprise cool. payday. And, uh, um, you know, a lot of it just came from a blog post and a random email. Wow. That, that's really cool. I know somewhere, uh, in reading your work or listening to your work, you, I think I saw a message, like a, a statement, you made something about the economics of blogging are horrible basically I mean, yeah. today. Yeah. I don't know if it's always been that way, but um, I've also the, heard the raw economics. I'll, I'll revise that statement right now with the raw economics yeah. of it. Meaning, yeah. meaning that if you are, want to write a blog and get paid directly for it, that sort of behooves you to put ads on it, which reduces the, which makes the user experience terrible, but then also alters what it is that you're creating in a way that uh, makes it not so good. I, I've, I've now, I think, learned how to do it better in, with, with better long-term thinking. So yeah. that, that's how I would revise that statement, I guess. Okay. Thank you for that. And yeah. And I'll like, I'll read Tim Ferriss's blog uh, even still from time to time. And uh, one of the things I'm interested in what he'll say is about how, 
blogging is, we might think of it, we might hear the word blog and think, oh, that's ancient technology, but how it's actually still very powerful that people haven't stopped reading that. Yeah, we have micro blogging in the form of Twitter and TikTok is so quick and all that, but people still read blogs. I was a little surprised to, to learn that. But what, let me ask you this, where you said you wrote like maybe thousand plus blog posts. What did you, how did you get past that? First of all, that kind of fear that I heard mm-hmm. you talk about, which I think is everybody has their own version of that today with whatever, like it, it might be starting a podcast today. It's like, Oh, Rogan's been doing it for 15 years. And yeah, there's so many and Brene Brown is getting into a big media house. Like we all have our own version of whatever it is we think we want to do, but there's the stories we tell ourselves to hold ourselves back. Mm-hmm. And you got past that inertia. So I love the example yeah. you are, but what kept you going? Like, how did I, you keep going? I, you know, I think I lucked out. Uh, I, and, and maybe there's something, maybe there's a lesson in there somewhere, but I think that if I were to speculate about how it worked, um, I'm a writer. I, uh, was not born a writer. I did not like writing growing up. I did not aspire to become a writer, but now I'm a writer. Mm. And the thing that I wanted to be when I was coming of age was, uh, a designer, a famous international award-winning designer. Um, and I it, admired, there was a mag, there's a magazine called Communication Arts that's big in the graphic design world. And I would just pour through those pages and look at all the firms that were in there and think, oh my gosh, I would love to work for one of these firms. And, and oh, also, by the way, look, none of them are in Nebraska. Woe is me. My life sucks. Um, and... Uh, and that was so I loved design. Uh, and that was like a lot of the motivation of for me starting my blog. Uh, like that's in that first blog post. I'm not sure what I'm gonna do here, but I am just gonna basically write uh maybe about design and web design. And also I saw it as a playground for me to practice CSS and HTML, those web design technologies. Um, and then um you know, I think just one thing led to another. One of the things that happened was that um, very early on in my career, I did end up in that magazine. Uh, like oh. it was like like my first like big design project that I even did as a professional. I ended up in that magazine. That was like the thing I wanted to accomplish in my career, and that was what we had all been told in in uh, design school that was like the ultimate thing to achieve. And I just found it a really um, not that rewarding of an experience. And it sort of rocked my world mm-hmm. and it made me rethink everything. And so I, 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 I kind of do wonder if I hadn't uh, had that honor so early, if I would still like be chasing that. Um, and, and so it, it was about design really. And, um, and then, but then I, it sort of morphed into... Um, it was just one little step after, after another, there were certain, certainly periods of time where I wasn't writing on my blog at all. Uh, and there were periods of time where I was writing more and it seemed to kind of go with how happy was I at work? <laughs> like mm-hmm. if I was happy at work, I wasn't paying attention to my blog. If I wasn't happy at work, I was starting to, to work on my blog because it was like the thing that I, it was a little world that I felt like I could control, um, and then, 
And, and I was actually just talking to a podcast host yesterday who was, uh, studied English and she was saying that she ha- would love to write a book, but she hasn't. And it made me realize like, oh my gosh, like maybe that's why I'm a writer now is because I didn't expect, I don't have any expectations about how it's done right. Yeah. Whereas like, I'm not even really a design, I don't really consider myself a designer now, but I know I have a lot of opinions about how that's done right. And, uh, and so in a way it, it's, it's been, um, in, in a way I just like, don't expect my writing to be that good. Uh, and I, and, and a little bit is of it is, is of, of a little bit of it is a little bit of it is just giving yourself permission to suck Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually telling yourself like that, that, oh, this is, let's make this bad. Uh, and one of two things happen um, when you do that is that either you move your fingers on the keyboard and you write and you think it's terrible. And then later on, you go back to it and realize, oh, it's actually pretty good, but I was just feeling so paralyzed. And so I, I, I wasn't able to do it or it actually isn't very good, but you're at least got yourself started and you're continuing to, to, uh, move forward with that. And I think that, uh, that's kind of the secret of getting good at anything is being okay with being really bad at it. I live in Colombia. I'm not a natural at learning languages. I've been here for six years and I'm pretty good at Spanish. Uh, but by contrast, you meet people who maybe they, they want to learn English and they're studying English and they know a lot about English, but they can't speak any English. And when you try to speak English with them or try to practice with them, they feel very ashamed and the, so they won't even they won't even make a mistake uh and that is absolutely essential to say learn a language is that you're going to say things wrong people are going to correct you but you have to keep doing it and so that uh comfort with being wrong is vital not just for learning a language i think but for making progress in anything yeah. Uh, especially creative things. Like obviously if you're going to be conducting surgery, uh, you know, you don't want to be wrong, but like they've got that figured out kind of, there's a curriculum that you can follow and there's a degree that you can get, you can put on your wall that tells people that you're a, sur- a surgeon and there's a lot to learn to get that degree, etc. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, um, doing this type of exploration that the only one that's harmed, uh, um, if you, if you don't do it is, is yourself. Yeah. And, and I have a suspicion that, you know, like in the cosmic view of things, it's really not just us, that there are people. And again, some of this gets kind of mystical even, but that there are people who I I saw, um, one of my podcast guests, he linked to an Instagram post that talked about why, why write. And it's just so kind of cheesy, but it was, but in a way, I think there's a truth in it. It was like, because right now 
there's someone with a hole in their soul in the exact shape of your words, <laughs> you know, but it's like, it's, I think it's kind of true. I think that's true. Um, but I'm also somebody who is very, this is an, an odd thing. I don't know if I even know how to articulate it quite right. And it often confuses people, but I am very careful to not, uh, make too much of the work that I do about helping somebody else, which <laughs> sounds awful. Um, but I, I worry that if the more that I convince myself that I'm helping somebody else, that I'm actually not mm. right. Um, I, I come, I try to come at it from a pla- more of a place of let's, um, do something that's going to create something that at the same time is creating a better version of yourself Yeah, and, and search for those, uh, those moments where, you're afraid to reveal something or to share uh, simply because you want to make yourself look good. Um, when often, oftentimes through the process of doing that, you would actually be doing a better job of making that better version of yourself, which often then happens to be helpful to people. I mean, I certainly get, messages from people very often, um, telling me that, oh, you know, your work makes a difference, et cetera. And I'm, I'm sort of like, really? Wow. Okay. That's cool. Um, I don't want to make what I get up and do every day about that sounds selfish, I think, but, um, I, I, it, it is me trying to help myself and at the same uh, putting my, on um, my oxygen mask, uh, first, I guess. Yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that because I think on the other side, right. There is, it is, I don't know, it could be a slippery slope toward do gooderism. And I don't, yeah. I'm not a fan and of I, gooders. And I, <laughs> right. And I, um, yeah, the, the, you know, the term being virtuous signal, which it can be a loaded term, you know, you can argue against or for it. I think if you, if you have a, an intelligent and honest conversation, but, uh, yeah. And I worked in that world for a, a while. That was sort of my last stop before going on my own was trying to save the world, right? Yeah. Going to work for like a green sustainable startup and being exposed to that industry and seeing that of um, the, the patting oneself on the back for doing good when you can't be so sure. And in some cases you're doing the exact opposite. Yeah. And I, I, that left a bad taste in my mouth. I don't, I, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. Well, I do, I do have uh, just a few more questions about the blog. I'm, I'm really blog curious. I hadn't realized this yeah, sure. <laughs> right now, but um, this is, this is an interesting thing to me about what I would say artists or creators where I think it's very common that, artists or creators, they know they want to share something. They know they want to create something, but they don't even know what it is necessarily. They don't know the the form even. They don't know the words. They don't know the message. They don't even know the audience. They haven't discovered their voice. So it's like, there's a lot of uncertainty just even at the outset. And of course we can get some clarity by sharing, right? But when you started your blog, how clear were you? You mentioned now that it, you knew it was about design 
So you were writing about design, you were practicing design, but how, how much of a sense did you have about who your audience was and what your topic or your message was? And then how did that evolve over your, you know, thousand or so blog posts? Very little sense. And I still don't have it figured out. Uh, and I've, but I've learned to embrace it and sort of work with that. I think it took me a very long time to realize uh, that there are different types of people, and there's there's a uh, I think there's a lot of different ways to categorize this that that kind of turn out to be kind of the same thing, you know, in Myers Briggs, which uh, as I understand is pseudoscience, but like there's the perceiving versus judging, but I think that those are valid uh, sort of qualities. You you, you get people who are uh, I, I think the the corollary in like the more supported psychological research is like need for closure, a high need for closure, low need for closure, low need for closure would be the perceiving people who like take in a lot. Um, they're inductive, uh, bottom up, uh, the judging people, the, um, the, the, those in high in need for closure, they are decisive. Uh, they want to close the loop. Um, they are deductive rather than, than inductive. Um, there's a economist, David Gallinson, who says that, oh, there's experimental creators and conceptual creators or experimental artists and conceptual artists. And he found that those who followed, uh, an experimental, um, mode of creation, their paintings tended, the prices of their paintings tended to peak later in their careers Whereas those who took the conceptual approach where they just kind of have like an idea that they execute rather than spending a, a lifetime searching for something, uh, those who take the conceptual approach, they peak early. So the, perf per the perfect archetypes being Picasso, who peaked very early, um, made his most important painting when he was 26, didn't do that much important stuff in the next roughly 60 years. Um, and versus Cezanne, who did his most important painting in his very last year of life, because he was, uh, constantly searching for this, uh, thing that he couldn't really find. And so, uh, and there's also the, the dichotomy of Fox versus hedgehog. That's from a, a, a um, an essay by Isaiah Berlin, where the, the Fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows one thing. And, Philip Tetlock has found that people who have a Fox cognitive style are actually better at telling the future um, and that they're even better than the experts in particular fields about uh, understanding or, or predicting what's actually going to happen. But by contrast, in sort of traditional media, it's the hedgehogs who get invited on CNN, the political pundits, et cetera, who are just going to have the sound bite, who are going to say, this is the way that things are. are. Mm. And so uh, early on, yeah, I, I knew I was going to be exploring web design, but I did like experiment with blogging, uh, blogging about a variety of different things. And I've never really homed in on one little thing. And that has made my progress, I think, very, very slow in contrast to say the online dating advice blog that I had where, okay, yeah. this is just about online dating. And I'm like writing about that and I'm writing with search engine optimization in mind. And that thing did 
quite well and made me like $150,000 or something that really helped me free myself up to explore a, a lot of things. And so now I'm very mindful of that sort of dichotomy and, and balance. I don't think that you have to be one or the other. I think that it's, you know, it's a spectrum, uh, it, that, um, but I try to be mindful of when I'm inhabiting the fox or the hedgehog mindset. I have to work pretty hard to be, I have, it, it takes effort for me to be a hedgehog. I uh, tend more towards the fox cognitive style, which is what you're going to, you know, hear people. You can hear it when somebody speaks, when they say, you know, something maybe is this way, but also you can consider this and they kind of go off on tangents. And that's the way that I talk. Um, now when it comes to my work and how I, uh, present myself to my audience. Now I, I think of it as a little bit of, of both. Um, uh, I try to kind of turn my sort of Fox explorations into, uh, hedgehog, I guess you could say honey pots or hedgehogs eat, eat honey. I don't know. It sound, just sounds right. They probably um, would. I'm, that's, I'm just guessing. <laughs> they probably, I probably would be totally in the, in the honey. Um, and they probably aren't that, uh, sensitive to bee stings. I'm making all this up, but so <laughs> just as an example, like the book that I was just talking about, um, or, or the, the economist that I was just talking about with the conceptual experimental creator dichotomy that is based on a book called old masters, young geniuses. I have read that book. And so now I've written a summary on it and it's going to be on my blog or, when I read about, say, Marshall McLuhan, um, and I read Understanding Media, and I really absorb that book, then I make a, a summary about it. And now that is, um, it's a piece of my broad interests, but it's also something that people will specifically search for. And yeah. so then that can kind of bring them into into my world, into um, into my audience. And when it comes to like my creativity books, there's the heart to start my management, not time management. These are sort of conceptual books, at least my management, not time management already fits into an existing category, which I think has really helped it sell very well. But then I also have other books that are a little bit um, more tactical, such as uh, digital Zettelkasten, which is all about the note-taking system, which people are probably saying, what is that? Who, who cares about that? There's actually a very uh, active uh, and, um, there's actually a very active and passionate community around that topic. And it's something that people search for. So that book has done extremely well, but it also brings people into that world where I can be a little bit more conceptual. I can be a little bit more conceptual. That's a, a, uh, an unfortunate use of the word conceptual because it's really experimental. Mm. So, so where I can be a little bit more experimental and I can be more exploratory, mm -hmm. uh, but I've brought them in through uh through one of the topics that does actually interest me and ultimately there is no here's what david cadavy is about if you have to define it these days i think it is about creativity and and, and productivity but it is something that i'm constantly exploring yeah no that really resonates with me and i suspect with a lot of people listening um especially anyone who's listening this far into our conversation. <laughs> but I remember a few years ago, um, I was at an event with a mentor of mine, uh, the New York times bestselling author and CEO coach, Marshall Goldsmith. And he was advising 
all of us coaches who were there to build your own brand. He was on this whole thing, build your own brand and declare, like pick something that you will be the world's leading expert in, right? Like pretty bold approach, I think. And I went back to my hotel room that night and I had a dry erase marker and I wrote on the mirror, I am the world's leading expert in blank. And it's just such a confronting exercise, like to declare this and live into it and, you know, create the evidence for it or whatever. And whether you attempt to achieve that through positioning, oh, it's totally new. It's at the intersection of this and this, or it's something traditional that you just, you know, muster up the, whatever the body of work to prove is true. Like either way, it just felt so challenging. And I've kind of abandoned that. I mean, Marshall has, has done that. And I, I think he's lived into it. And I look at other people again, like going to Tim Ferriss, where like his whole blog, I interview the world's leading performers in a variety of fields, you know, and people are interested in that naturally. And for what I do, what I think you do. Yeah. It's not as simple as a single topic, right? It's not Brene Brown vulnerability or Simon Sinek is purpose or like some people. And I always wonder, like, I don't even think they started out and said, well, here's the one thing. And then I'm going to drive everything at it. I think it's almost an after the fact things made sense, or maybe they moved in a direction. So that was part of what I was curious about with your blog and your audience and your message. So thanks for kind of breaking that down, but but what what, what are your thoughts? It's it's both, it's both bottom up and, and top it's primarily bottom up. It's primarily what am I interested in right now? And trying to reconnect with that feeling of being alone in my room mm-hmm. uh, and just like losing track of time. That's kind of always been my metric that I've chased since my first day on my own is how does this feel? Uh, the thing that I'm, that I'm working on. And I lose touch with it from time, from time to time. Um, but then once I've done something with that and created something, I can kind of step back and say, okay, well now, who can this be for? How mm-hmm. can I make this something marketable uh, yeah. that that um, is of some utility of two people? And how can I categorize it and name it and label it in a way that the people who need it can find it? Right. That they'll understand it once they find it, that they'll want it, right? That it's compelling. It's got a compelling package or title or whatever. Yeah. Because I, I, um, I signed up for a marketing course online with Seth Godin, someone I know you've interviewed. Yeah. And I, one of my big takeaways from that was just about, I mean, in it's age old wisdom, right? But it's like, who, who do you serve and what problem do you solve for them? And I find for myself, that's, that's pretty challenging, but then I'll talk to other people and many of them are in the spiritual teaching realm. It's not exclusive by any means, but like I interviewed, um, Mark Nepo, the author of the book of awakening and pretty successful guy, if you measure by book sales, but he would say, I write my books. He says, the common writing advice is write what you know. He said, but I write what I need to know. And in that way, my books become my teachers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is such a beautiful perspective. Like, you know, I have a book I'm thinking about writing right now uh, about prayer, which even myself, I'm like, where did that come from? I'm not, I don't consider myself religious. It's not something I understand very well but I'm super fascinated to go learn like what's the indigenous perspective on this and what is the traditional religious perspective and the Eastern perspective and like all of this. And I don't know where that comes from, but my curiosity is pulling me in that direction. Yeah. I, um, I experience this as well where I am uh, writing to teach myself something, something I want to discover. I'm writing to discover 
And I think that there's a nice way of thinking about this that can help somebody identify what it is that they're doing. Um, and for me, it's, are you being the expert or are you being the angel? So like an angel is somebody who's been through it and they're showing you. So that's what I think that I am when I'm writing to discover is I'm discovering it. And then just after discovering it, I'm going to tell you about it. And I'm telling you about it in order to teach myself as well. And then there's the expert, which is, this is just something that you know, and people have asked you a million times. The angel? Because the expert is the first one you mentioned, yeah? The the, the angel. uh, Oh, the angel is the first one that's been through it? Well, the angel is the one that's just been through it. Okay. The expert's the one that has been through it so long ago that they just know and mm-hmm. can uh, list off exactly how to do it. They can write the outline for the book before they write the book. Mm-hmm. And this is something I always struggled with in English class growing up was they would say, oh, write it. The teacher would say, write an outline. I'm like, well, how am I going to write an outline if I haven't written the paper yet? Would always be my question. But now I know having written about things that I actually know, know, because I'm an expert on it in some way that when you are an expert, you can write the outline Mm -hmm. because you can see the whole book in your head. But when you're an angel, you are discovering the contents as you're in the process of writing. And so you've got to go back and forth between writing free form and uh, writing the outline and for myself, I sit down, I've got a typewriter, barely seated over my shoulder, sit down and I type on the typewriter and I just write free form with that. And I'll do that um, on my mornings. And then every once in a while, I'll sit down and I'll try to like write the outline of the book or whatever it is I'm writing. And I'll usually, I never complete an outline. I usually get about maybe halfway through it and there'll be either I hit some sort of vein where... I start writing on this one bullet point and I just keep writing or I feel like, okay, I, I, that's, that's not, I'm stuck. I can't write more of this outline. I just need to go to freeform writing and then let time pass and then try again a few days later or a week later, or a month later, try again. I sit down and I write an outline that's clear here. Yeah. And uh, it's that, that process that's the inductive process uh and that's a very what that uh coach said to you was a very deductive uh top down j uh high need for closure thing and some people were wired that way yeah i think some people they just they can go an inch wide and a mile deep on something they can just have an idea and execute that and then stick with it for 30 years yeah. Um, and make a great career around it. And that's not us. Yeah. I, I'm and it's with a you. lot more comfortable when you're, when you realize that, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's, I think so much of what your book, um, especially mind management, not time management has really, uh, reminded me or, or taught me was about how much, just how much the creative process really is about self-discovery and creating awareness. Right. And, um, so I want to, I do want to ask you about this in, in this part. You talk about, you've identified something you call seven mental states. 
mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting because, um, and I'll just kind of preface this by saying, uh, I, I love that saying about all models are wrong, right? That famous scientific saying all models are wrong, but uh-huh. some models are useful, right? And so you've like created a model. model. And, and this is something that I think without the awareness of this model, so it's not that it's the truth with a capital T, but yeah. it can help us to become aware of something that might've been the unawareness was the impediment we were experiencing when we sat down, why can't I write right now? Or this, this project might be all wrong or whatever. And you, so will you just say a little bit about what are the set, like, what are the seven mental states? How did you discover it? Why are they important? And how can we use them to achieve <laughs> okay. activity and productivity? There's a lot there. I usually avoid talking about it on audio because it, it's because there's seven and it's quite a lot, but let's give it a shot. Okay. Uh, so I think of the as an acronym, P-E-R-G-P-A-R. So I think of it as per golf par and the G for golf is in the middle par, per golf par. And so the seven mental states for me are prioritize, explore, research, generate, polish, administrate, recharge. And let's, let's think about this from a creativity standpoint as a writer. When I sit down in the morning and I write and I have a pretty good idea what I'm trying to write and I'm trying to make some kind of useful writing, that for me is a generate mental state. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in the process of doing that writing, I will come across something that I don't know. Uh, I have some idea of what it is. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's the name of somebody. Um, Maybe it's just that uh, I want to have a good example to support the thing that I'm writing about. And it's not immediately coming to mind as I'm writing and I'm in this generate mental state. And that's a time when I will just type a bracket or on my typewriter parentheses, because there's not a bracket. And that is a signal to my brain that now I can talk on a different level or um, be, uh, be sloppy. And that might be uh, that I just type in a, a year. And that just signals to me that later on, I'm going to need to go get that. And this helps keep me in that mental state because when we switch mental states, it's very cognitively taxing. Um, and it's a, a waste of energy, really. If you're getting moving on, on something that you are generating, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't make sense for you to you know, go check Wikipedia to make this name right because you just have to switch mental states and then it also involves you getting on the internet and if you're on a typewriter like i like to write then that's not very useful because now you're in this uh, environment where you can very easily get distracted and get completely off track and uh and then there'll be some other time like maybe later on in the afternoon where i'll go over that and i'll look at the things that are in the brackets and that's when i'll go into that research mental state where i'm looking for something specific so generate for me is like generating some work that i'm actually going to use uh the research mental state is looking for answers to a specific question and then there's the explore mental state which is one that i really enjoy and that can be free writing uh that can be 
uh, reading something that I'm just really curious about, even if I don't know exactly how it's going to apply to anything that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's things like the polish mental state, which is that's the time when I'm editing. And I feel, and I have found that there's different times of day, different times of week, even where I, uh, I'm more apt to be in any of these particular mental states. And I, so I like to divide up my work according to these mental states. So for example, uh, if I get an email from my accountant and it says, Hey, review these financial statements, hopefully it's not an emergency. It better not be if it's from my accountant um, because uh, there shouldn't be a lot of surprises there. Um, I will just use an app called Boomerang to take that email out of my inbox and have it come back to my inbox on Friday afternoon. Why Friday afternoon? Because I've been working all week. Uh, I've really put all my best creative juice into the writing that I'm doing, into whatever it is that I'm creating. And looking at financial statements is kind of a mindless activity that I don't want to use that best mental energy for. And so Friday afternoon is kind of the time that I do that administrate uh, administrative work. Uh, and so that's just a little bit of a tour of the mental states and how I actually use them in day-to-day work. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that. I was, I was particularly intrigued in the, in this idea of mental states. Uh, there's a couple, couple things that really stood out to me. One was in some of the learning I've done with Tony Robbins, and he'll talk about peak states just generally in life, curiosity, awe, mm-hmm. gratitude, you know, playfulness, like these kinds of things. And he'll teach about shifting our states consciously to find him, you know, basically to motivate ourselves to stay productive just because of the experience they are in and of themselves, <laughs> that kind of thing, which I was intrigued because I had experienced definitely there's times where it's easy to write. But there's times where mm-hmm. the challenge for me to writing is that I'm trying, and I hadn't, I hadn't had the model for it. I didn't have a language for it was that I found myself, like you pointed out, either going into a research state or a polish state when I think my writing would have been best served by staying in the generate state. Mm-hmm. And then like you're saying as well, that there are times where there are other tasks that are important to do, but if I let the things that would be appropriate for the administrate state be attended to at that time. I'm not only going to enjoy the experience more, I'm going to be more likely to finish and produce something. So I really loved having that, that framework for that. It's really nice to have, uh, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty advanced. I think it takes quite a bit of practice to get to the point where you actually have like these buckets of time throughout your week. Like I do where certain stuff is going to get done though. Then again, maybe not, it's not particularly hard to do to like when one of these things comes along like, oh, you've got to pay somebody through PayPal or something. And you just put it in this bucket that um, there's going to be this time where uh, your energy is a little bit more appropriate for doing that type of stuff. And it's it works beautifully in two different ways. One is that your energy is a little bit better for doing that administrative stuff during that administrative time. But then you also feel more at peace and, and present with that most important creative work that you're doing uh, while you're doing it, because you don't have that open loop in your head where you're thinking, oh, I need to be doing that thing. You need to be doing that thing because you've already, uh, you already have a system that you can trust during which a lot of that is going to be um, 
it, where that's going to be taken care of. I'm sounding yeah. like David Allen right now. Yeah. Well, no, that was actually the exact <laughs> yeah. next place that I was going, which was, you know, um, David Allen's system, the GT, was it GTD getting things done system where I think for anyone who studied it and, and really tried out the power of context, the contextual tasks, how important it is that we can close these open loops. We can free up mental energy. We can increase our peace by not trying, certainly by not trying to remember in our heads or on sticky notes of buying cat food, you know, when we're at work, but when we're at the store, but yeah, to on that. And those are like the same thing, uh, kind of is, is uh, physical context and mental context are almost the same thing. It, it, it's almost as, as uh, it makes almost as little sense to think about uh, buying cat food when you're sitting on your couch and you're not at the grocery store or the pet store uh, as it does to think about, you know, that you need to make this payment um, when you're not in the right mental state to do that or actually even more important in the, in the converse where you're trying to write this thing and it's just not the time of day or time of week during yeah. which you have that energy and that juice to do that type of, uh, mental task. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and, and that's where this is like the, the chapter David Allen didn't know he was missing <laughs> about, you know, and I love get, get even the subtitle of your book, getting art done. Right. Yeah, that's the that's the series, you know, getting art done. I, that that was so hopefully will, will be a trilogy. I'm working on the third book for for that, and I do really see uh, I owe a great debt of gratitude to David Allen, and I do see uh, the things that I'm writing about as sort of a, a lay something that sits upon that foundation of of getting things done. You know, you, you have your kind of basic time management figured out. Time management isn't totally evil. And then uh, you need to have some kind of way of managing the inputs in your life. And that frees up your creative energy. But hey, now what, what do we do about making the most of that creative energy? Yeah, absolutely. And for anybody who's hearing this and has any inkling that this might be a value for you to increase the amount of I would say peace you feel to reduce your stress, increase your creative or productive output. Uh, I highly recommend that you pick up this book, uh, Mind Management, Not Time Management, and and really to see for yourself, like, I love, David, what you've written. You say it's a waste to try to force yourself to do work you aren't in the right mental state to do. And I think that's totally true. But then you go beyond just pointing that out and then give us like some depth on like what to do about that. Yeah, I think that we a big mistake that a lot of us make is that we live by the to-do list. We have our to-do list. It's maybe not in any particular order. Mm -hmm. We just kind of stare at it. Uh, and we try to pick an item off of it. And maybe it's not so easy. But if you think about an elite athlete, they're not going to just show up to a meet or a, a fight or a game having not warmed up, having not gotten themselves into a state for the performance that they're, that they hope to have. Yeah. So why do we treat our to-do lists as if anything is possible at any moment? It's, it's yeah. much, um, it's much more productive and more fun and enjoyable. I think to do the thing that matches the mental state that you're in, in the particular moment. And this is why I actually, uh, categorize my to-do list by mental state. So that when I'm in a particular mental state, I can just go look 
at the tasks that fit it and just go straight through those. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And I do think it's a next level kind of thing. Uh, and I'm curious too, because there's also the, okay, I'm in this state. What are the tasks that are appropriate for this context or this mental state? But there's also the, here's this task that I'm committed to do, or I have to do or whatever. Now, how do I generate that state? And I understand yeah. you've cultivated some practices along the years to help you do that. Um, is that true? Yeah. I mean, and that is kind of a, a next level sort of thing is that, um, <clears throat> getting yourself into a state because you don't always have the luxury of waiting until you're into the, in the right state in order to do something. So, uh, there's a great story in Josh Waitzkin's, uh, art of learning about an executive, uh, who was having trouble focusing in meetings. And he said that what he did was ask him, well, when's, when's the time that you feel the most in the right state to that you would like to be in when you're in, in meetings, like focus, kind of a flow state. He's like, well, I'm playing catch with my son. And so he uh, prescribed for him this sort of uh, routine of play catch with your son, eat this snack, do these stretches, listen to this song, then go to your meeting. Um, and gradually over time, kept doing that uh, so that eventually all he had to do was not just listen to the song, but maybe even just think about the song. And then that would get him into the right mental state that to, to go to his meetings. Um, and so there's a lot of different things you can, you can do different cues that you can set up. I mean, one is really just like trying to imagine the last time that you were in the state that you would like to be in. Um, and that is something that where you can start to find maybe those cues that there might be a, a snack or a song that you listen to or a physical activity that you do that gets you into that state. But there can be other sort of cues. Uh, one thing that I did was early on um, when I started on my own, I had a tiny bedroom in San Francisco and that was the space that I had available to me. And I was uh, working late at night cafes were closed. I couldn't go to a cafe necessarily, or I couldn't go to a cafe. And my bed was right next to my desk and I didn't want to confuse my brain so that I would be in sort of sleep mode while I'm working or work mode while I was sleeping. So I had a Soji screen. I had this whole routine. The Soji screen went, uh, I would it covered the desk and I would open it up uh, so that it would create sort of a cubicle. And then I had a clip lamp that I put on the Soji screen and I would direct it upwards towards the ceiling so that it would give soft lighting. And then I would put on aromatherapy and I would choose, I think, lemongrass at the time. And, uh, and then I would listen to a particular album. It was Ryan Adams' gold. And so just, uh, and I think I would probably started off with La Cienega just smiled. Um, and there's this sort of like simultaneous bass, uh, guitar and kick drum thing at the beginning of that. And that combination of things, as soon as I heard that I was in work mode, uh, and that I would spend many hours doing that. And then when it was time to go to bed, or maybe get start getting ready to bed, change the aromatherapy to lavender, uh, change the lighting, put the Soji screen around the desk, change all those cues 
so that I could change my environment while actually still being in the same room. And, uh, you know, it's almost like it could be anything. Uh, right. I can't remember which writer it was that said in, uh, in daily rituals, like you could kind of just tell yourself, you know, my writing routine is going to be that I'm going to wear earmuffs on my back porch. And like, that's going to help me write. And as long as you believe it, it's going to be true. And yeah. especially if you, if you do it repeatedly, it is going to make it is going to make it true. So, uh, it is a little bit of setting up cues and a, a little bit of also just convincing yourself that you can do it. Yeah. Now I, I absolutely believe that. And, and so what we're saying uh, that it can work both ways about both just recognizing that as we live each day, we go through different States and we can be aware of those and we can leverage those. And then there are times where we can create those. Yeah. I think of it like the first time I ever tried to play a guitar mm-hmm. Uh, anybody, I don't know what it was like for most people who have, who play guitar, but the first time that I put, try to put my fingers on the proper strings and to press them down hard enough to like, not make the fret buzz. And, uh, I said to myself, this is not possible. You can't, you, you can't contort a hand in that way, but after enough practice, you know, you can not only do it, but you can switch and you're not even thinking about it. Yeah. It's just happening. And I think that we can gain the same mastery over our minds. If we believe it and if we practice it, we can get ourselves into the states that we need to be in and, uh, and also gain that sensitivity of, um, of kind of sailing with the wind, I guess, right? Is that uh, the wind is going a certain direction. You need to go over there. How are you going to get... Uh, to that direction. If it, if it isn't such that it's going to take you directly there. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, cool. Well, David, we've, we've talked about so much already. And, uh, if you can believe it, we've only covered about a third of the question (laughs) I had outlined. Um, but, uh, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Cool. All right. So this again is a series of questions on a variety of topics. My aim for the most part is to ask the question, kind of stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want, but uh, I'll work to keep us moving through here and maybe only occasionally tug on an answer. So, okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a, Hmm. An avocado. Okay. Question number two, because you never know what you're going to get when you open it. <laughs> When you open it, I don't know what kind of avocados you eat, but I feel pretty confident when I open one. Oh, really? I have, I, I actually have an entire article about this on my, on my website about how, uh, my, my wife and I just like had this exercise where every time we would open an avocado for a month, we would say, all right, how confident are you that this avocado is perfect? like 60%, 70%, 90%, 100%. And we use that to predict, to rate our ability to predict the future and also to um, come up with some sort of model of how to, how do you define a perfect avocado? So actually I find avocados to be extremely unpredictable. Wow. All right. <laughs> Not extremely, but they're like, I, I'm better at predicting them than I used to be, but they're still unpredictable to me. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you, I don't know what the avocados are like in Utah. Yeah, they're they don't grow here, so they're all imported. But maybe that's why. By the time they've made it here, they've passed some kind of test. I don't know. Yeah. 
Right on. Okay. I'll never look at an avocado the same way again. Um, question number two, what's something about which you have changed your mind in recent years? I used to think it was a really dumb idea to go to Mars uh, or to um, uh, invest a lot of resources in going to Mars. And now I at least respect the um, contrary opinion to that, which mm -hmm. is that uh, I read uh, Way But Wise rundown of Elon Musk. There's a whole Kindle book of the articles that he's written um, or that Tim Urban has written about Elon Musk. And it kind of goes through, all right, here is the likelihood that there will be a massive extinction event. And by going to Mars, we can uh, back up humanity so that we don't entirely have our species get wiped out. And I think that's that's a decent argument. I think that you can make the argument of how tragic would it be if our if our species disappeared or not. That is, um, you know, I don't I don't think that that you can necessarily. I'm not I'm not uh, completely clear that like that is something that we should prevent at all costs. Um, we don't necessarily have control over it if we don't back ourselves up to Mars, regardless of how good we are to our planet. Um, but so now I, I, I at least, um, see, think, oh, that's actually pretty interesting. I'm not, uh, going to invest in going to Mars myself, but I understand that perspective. Yeah. You know, there's, um, there's a few people I wouldn't mind if they went to Mars, but <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, what you've said though, about the human race, um, I'm, I'm with you there and not being certain about like, we should do every, you know, save it at all costs or whatever. I mean, life will go on whether or not humans go on, but the, I'm with I, George Carlin on this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't heard the, his bit on that. I mean, he's got this amazing bit that like really challenges you where he says, um, you know, uh, these environmentalists want to save the planet, save the planet. How arrogant is that? And you're thinking like, what, what are you, and then he, he, then he just takes you on this turn where you were like, oh my gosh, you're right. The, the, the planet is going to be fine. It'll shake right. us off like a bad case of fleas. We're the ones who are screwed. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's other clips of him where he's like, you know, I'm not really a big fan of the human race. I, I, I kind of root for it to be wiped out, blah, 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 blah. And he might be joking, but he, he very well might not be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's yeah. like, I like individuals, but I hate when people get into groups. I'm like, I think I agree with that perspective as well. Yeah, I, I do like George Carlin. Um, I interviewed somebody a few years ago who, uh, who wrote a book about the future. And one of the things that he talks about in his book is, uh, this is Alan Weissman. Um, called, he wrote a book called The World Without Us. A World oh, Without yeah. Us. About yeah. what, what will happen. And in that book, I learned about something that is a real thing. Have you heard of, um, its acronym is v vehement. That's the voluntary mm. human extinction movement. It's a group of people who oh, actually wow. think we shouldn't be here. We should stop wow. producing and we should kind of run the course down and just, yeah. I'm like, Whoa, that's it. That's pretty extreme. I'm not, I'm not a part of that group. I don't think, but I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I think I actually still respect that opinion as long as they don't want to actively kill me, but they probably do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, 
this is this is that fox cognitive style is that i can kind of entertain any sort of opinion and uh and a lot of things that uh certain beliefs or widely held beliefs or arguments rest upon that are assumptions that maybe a lot of people don't even um question or notice such as would it be a tragedy if the human race were were <laughs> were um were wiped out most people i think like that that, that's a a no-brainer for them and and for me everything is fuzzy yeah especially as a human like i'm I'm biased right like i want to live i think humans are are we should be i i like humanity being here but i'm a human of course i think that yeah naturally okay question number three if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or phrase or saying or quote or quip what would the shirt say? This is a lot like the uh, Tim Ferriss. Uh, if you could advertise something on a billboard to a lot of people, question what would it say? And um, I did a little stunt where I advertised mind management, not time management on a billboard in Times Square uh, so that I could get Tim Ferriss to retweet a video of it, uh, which he did. And, uh, so the immediate thing that comes to mind is mind management, not time management on the t-shirt. Right on. Um, I listened to your podcast about that. I thought it was actually (laughs) really cool and how you broke it down and how generous you were with sharing. I mean, that's really interesting and, and creative. That's pretty cool. It was fun. Yeah. So I want, I do want to link to that, um, podcast in these show notes for anybody listening to hear. Uh, surprisingly affordable. And it sounds like, although it's maybe hard to quantify exactly the benefits came in unexpected ways. Oh yeah. I mean, then that's um, what I'm always trying to do, I think is, is uh, create conditions for unexpected benefits to occur. That's pretty cool. Okay. Question number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? I think daily rituals. Uh, I really, I just, I just love to read about the habits of creators of all types. It's, uh, there's actually two of them. There's daily rituals and there's daily rituals. Women at work. Uh, they're both fantastic. In fact, this, the second one is perhaps even better. I don't know if it's because of the content or because, uh, um, or because Mason Curry improved his writing style or what. But I. I love that those two books and they're nice, like bite-sized short chapters. And I find it quite inspiring, inspiring and, and very interesting to hear about the work styles of different creators. Yeah. That, that book changed my life. It really did. And helping me see that we don't need to work 16 hours a day. In fact, yeah. it's counterproductive to, but if we're in our zone of genius, we're doing what we love and we, we are consistent and especially, and we have talent. And we stay with it very often. We do succeed. Yeah. Pretty much nobody works. I mean, especially not writers. You don't see them. The painters, you know, they, 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 they'll be working around the clock sometimes, but not the writers unless they do a lot of methamphetamines. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Which then is, I, they have that in the book too. Yeah, that's right. That, I don't remember who did this, but I saw kind of a visual summary of the book where someone, it wasn't Mason, 
but someone took and made like a chart of all the practices. Like it will say going for a walk, taking a nap. Oh, cool. It was really interesting. The time of day they worked in, it was like a bar chart. It was, it was really interesting. Oh, I mean, look that up. Yeah, it was cool. Okay. Um, moving on question number five. So you've traveled a lot in your life. Many times I understand from your books, times that you'd probably rather not have been <laughs> traveling. Out, yeah. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Keeping lists, uh, packing lists of my trips. And when I go on a trip that is somewhat like a trip I've previously been on, I just make a copy of it and go through that list. And that way I can kind of mentally pack. Um, before I used lists, I really struggled because there's always this issue where you can't pack that because you still need it. Yeah. And um, so thanks to that, I it just makes it way easier for me to even plan trips. Um, so for example, if I just want to go on a weekend trip to uh, a beach somewhere, I've already gone on that trip and I can just take the packing list and I can be packed you know, in half an hour or so with everything that I need and I won't forget anything. And, um, and, uh, I, I pack a lot of different, a lot of different stuff. So, um, it makes it really easy to actually use lists. Right on. Okay. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age? Well, I've mostly stopped drinking. I don't know if that is to, to age well, I'm not sure why I stopped. I guess I just enjoyed being sober, but now I've, as I've learned more and more about the effects of alcohol, uh, I, it is a little bit of a health decision as well. Uh, and I'm about to start wearing daily uh, facial sunscreen protection because I've moved to a pretty high altitude where the UV index is very high. I'm certainly somebody who is wary of the idea of sunscreen to some extent, uh, any, any time that there's money to be made in something I'm skeptical, but I think with a UV index is 11, it's probably time to put on some sunscreen. Yeah. All right. Um, question number seven. So this question is recognizing that you were born in raised in and don't currently live in the United States of America, (laughs) (laughs) but what's one thing you wish every American knew or every U S citizen knew. I wish that, uh, people in the U S were maybe less risk averse. Um, and I mean that in a way that like I I live here in Colombia, and, um, things, they have a very sort of laissez faire attitude about things. And that can be annoying sometimes. Um, because maybe sometimes something bad happens and it really shouldn't have happened, but there's a certain level of freedom that comes along with that. Um, For example, I've been trying out gyms here and um, just today I went to a gym and I said, Hey, um, I just want to buy a day pass for this gym. And they said, Oh, uh, just go in. You know, it's your first time here. Like you can come in for free. I didn't have to fill anything out. There was no waiver to sign. I just went into the gym and worked out. And something terrible probably could have happened. And I would have been SOL and wouldn't have had any recourse about it. And there isn't that litigious sort of society here. 
Whereas you go, if that were to happen in the U.S., you would have to fill out a bunch of stuff. You give an ID. And there's just this extra bureaucratic um, uh, machinery that I find suffocating, and it uh, seeps its way into all aspects of life. And it's something that uh, I don't enjoy, and I don't think that it has the effect that people hope for it to have. So I, I wish that. Uh, people were would give up a little bit of their desire for control because they can't control everything. Yeah, for sure. Well, they also would have added you to a marketing list. <laughs> they would have added me. I would have got, yeah, you got to have the emails and then the calls and, yeah, you know, there's not the, I don't think there's as much of the uh, do not call, there's not a do, do not call list registry here. So, I, you know, certainly the call spam and the text spam is, is pretty, is, is a little bit out of control here. And I have thought about just getting a different phone number for that. Um, but one thing that's wonderful about living here that I found suffocating living in the United States was junk mail. Yeah. Uh, so much junk mail in the US and I get none here. I almost never get mail. If I get mail, it's usually something important. So I don't have to do this exercise of coming home every day and there being a mailbox that I have to empty because it is completely full of things that I don't want. Yeah. And I, I think that we underestimate, I think the Americans underestimate the um, cost of that, that cognitive load um, just in the mailbox, which where I think that that uh, permeates throughout the entire culture. And then you hear people make this crazy argument that like, well, the junk mail is what subsidizes the mail service and makes it possible for us to send uh, letters for 32 cents or whatever it is. Like, that's just a crazy argument that you're going to, uh, yeah. you're going to, you're going to withstand getting junk mail to the degree that you do in the United States so that you can buy a stamp for cheap three times a year to uh. write to your 90 year old aunt. Like, what, how, how is that? How does that logic exist? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, okay. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Uh, I think that uh, it's that people aren't e-commerce items. Um. I think I learned that from doing a lot of online dating. As I said, I had an online dating advice blog. And, and I do remember seeing a profile once that was like, oh, e-commerce, this is like takes e-commerce to a new level. And like, oh, that's interesting. And then I, I think it took me a while to come to the realization that, um, that I might have been treating people like e-commerce items um, in that you go on, say at the time, OkCupid was the one that I was using a lot and you fill out all these survey questions and how important is, th is it that uh, they like chocolate or they don't like chocolate or that they like this band or they don't like this band. And then you get this percentage that tells you like how good of a match they are. And then of course you go on the date with the person. And even though they're a 98% match, like there's, it's totally wrong, but it gives us this perception um, not only that they've found the right person for us, but that they have custom that that we have customized them. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, whatever sort of input or 
ideas that we have put into this machine has presented us with this perfect person that meets all that criteria. And I feel like I've been on the uh, receiving end of that sometimes when, when, um, when you, you come to the realization that somebody has been um, ascribing qualities to you that you do not have or have had expectations about you um, that do not fit who you are and that you have just really been this blank canvas upon which they have projected this idealized image. And I think that the sort of online dating game um, supports that. And so I think coming to the realization that whoever it is that you have any type of relationship with that you get, that they're not customized for you. They are not, uh, what is it called? An RPG or, or N, N, oh, NPC. Player, NPC. They're yeah. not an NPC. Yeah. Uh, they are actually another person who is imperfect and that you just have to t- take them at that and, and work with that. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for that. And uh, the last question here in the Enlightening Lightning Round is, uh, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? I think that you can only save so much money um, and that there is a lot of cognitive load that can go into the act of trying to save money. And I think by extension of that, the idea of some sort of aspirational time value. So say you're at a grocery store and you're trying to decide between two cans of soup that are more or less identical. The branding is different on them, but uh, one is four cents less than the other. Um, Any amount of... Once you reach a certain level of financial security, any amount of consideration regarding that price is a waste of your time and mental energy um, because it might not be readily apparent, uh, but by not expending that energy, you could make more than four cents uh, doing that. And then I, I think also by extension of that, I have tried to be as good as I can about giving myself enough padding to not put myself in situations where I have to um, make any sort of urgent decisions about, uh, about money, um, where there's like, I need to stop everything so that I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I try to have like a certain level of automation, but then there's a certain amount in, in each bank account so that there's padding. Um, so I don't have to like sit there and calculate and I've tried to like build up, um, to that point. And so I guess maybe that's just all to say that the, uh, cognitive, cost of trying to lower the raised floor of the minimum amount of money that it takes to exist is is way greater than anything that you could possibly save. And so you can uh, be well served by trying to raise your ceiling instead of lowering your floor. Mm-hmm. Right on. Not something that is, um, I think, obvious, <laughs> but I think it's insightful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So thank you for that perspective. Okay. Well, speaking of money, one of the things that I have done in an attempt to demonstrate my gratitude to you for sharing so generously of your experience and your learning uh, is I have gone on the micro lending site, kiva.org. Do you know this organization? 
I vaguely recall them. They give loans to uh, people who are starting businesses in, yeah. in yeah, uh, say, rural Africa, for, for example. Or, okay. Yep, that's yeah. right. So uh, this is something I've done for a number of years, and I like to do this um, for my podcast guests. Is one way I, I use Kiva.org. Part of what I love about it is that it's not charity. So although mm-hmm. I don't earn interest on this, the model that Kiva uses is that there is a field partner in each country where they work. And it's the field partner who will receive the interest and it goes to fund their operations so that they can create hopefully a virtuous cycle. And then the entrepreneur is able to use the money and improve the quality of life for themselves, their family, the people they serve. So the woman that I made this loan to, um, her name is Maria. She actually is in Colombia and she will use this to actually, she will buy alcohol. She'll buy liquor and snacks to sell. And, uh, she's, I understand just North of you in a place called Taraza. I don't know if I'm Taraza. I've never heard of Taraza before, but I'm writing it down right now. Yeah. I think it's about five hours North of Medellin. So that was a small thing I did. And then, um, as before we started recording, uh, I jumped aboard your Patreon to be a supporter. So thank you for that. I, I received the email for that and I really deeply appreciate that I love, uh, I love the Patreon support. As I've said, um, it is, it, it is not, uh, the largest source of my revenue, but it is the most meaningful. That's pretty cool. And I love yeah. that. It's one of the things that I, I've enjoyed and appreciated hearing you talk about is how not all revenue is equal. Not every dollar is the same as every other dollar and, and how I think your podcast also does not have sponsorship at least currently. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I don't do sponsors anymore. I used to do them. And, um, I came to the realization that while I was getting all these podcast pitches, I was getting all the pitches for people to be guests on my podcast. And it was weird to me because I thought, well, how am I getting so many of these? And I came to the realization, oh, they, they think that I am looking for guests that I'm not already like looking to interview people that there aren't already people that I'm interested in. And why would I be looking for guests? Oh, because if I had a podcast on which I had advertising slots, then it would behoove me to take whatever guest I could get because that would be extra revenue um, because I would, ha- I would open extra slots with every interview that I did. And so that I realized, oh, that's a perverse incentive. I don't, um, I don't want that. I want to, when I interview somebody on my podcast, for it to be about what I'm actually getting out of the interview. And so I no longer take uh, sponsorships and I don't plan to in the future. Yeah, that's that's um, similar a bit to my experience where I just don't, I just don't want the hassle of, of soliciting <laughs> sponsors. And then I don't want the work of fulfilling that. And I don't want my listeners to hear it. I mean, I've tried it in the past and maybe at some point in the future, but I don't do Patreon and myself. And there's only one other uh, author whose Patreon I also support. But uh, as I was telling you before we began recording, I think that more creators could actually find support from a community of people through Patreon financial support if they only put it out there. And to me, it's a little bit like, I remember reading the Steve Jobs, uh, the Walter Isaacson biography, where he talked about when before Apple Music came out, 
and everyone was, many people were stealing music through Napster or whatever. Uh-huh. And it was jobs contention that if we just created a legal and easy way for people to buy music, they would do it, but we haven't yet. And I think there's that kind of equivalent, like Patreon, people would support us if only we made it easy for them create, to do so. Yeah. Create a way for, for you to be able to give them money. I mean, it sort of reminds me of Tim Ferriss has, has uh, helped me a lot with all the things that he's created. I think I borrowed the four hour work week from a friend and I've, you know, maybe bought a couple of his other books so we're talking about like a lifetime, you know, $30 maybe that I've given to him for all the value he's, he's created for me. And, uh, it's like, I mean, if, if he had a Patreon, I would be supporting him, but, uh, yeah. it's not available. Yeah. He's been someone I've never met him myself or talked to him at all, but he's, um, he's been very generous with what he shared. And a lot of what I've learned, uh, yeah. in this realm has, has come from Tim too. So well, um, David, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I really do have so much more that I'd love to talk to you about, but maybe at some point we'll do a part two, uh, for today, Absolutely. just acknowledge we've already gone, uh, quite long. So perhaps, uh, we can just wrap up if I ask you by asking you what advice or encouragement do you leave those listening with who are either at the cusp of embarking on their own creative project, something they've thought about but haven't done, or they're in the messy middle. What do you say to people to get them going or to keep them going? Well, I think if you want to get going, I think do the most insanely basic thing that you could possibly do. So for example, I have a, uh, an email course called 100 word writing habit. That's at 100 wordwritinghabitcom And the idea behind that is to build a habit, uh, writing a hundred words a day. And, uh, I think that's one of these actions that, uh, I think is really helpful for getting started for anything is it sounds like a hundred words is insignificant. Why even bother? So I think that if you don't have that reaction to whatever this first step is, this seems so insignificant. Why even bother? then you're asking too much of yourself. And for continuing to get going, I think for myself, I very often have to ask myself that question, how does this feel? Um, Is this the way that I want to feel doing this work? Is there something that I can change that can get me to the feeling that I want to have doing this work? Is there an assumption that I'm making that is uh, creating some kind of resistance that is making it more difficult than it needs to be for me to continue with this work? And if so, can I change so that I'm not making that assumption and so that I'm doing something that feels right? Right on. makes me want to keep going. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And, um, thank you to everyone listening. I hope you have enjoyed this. I hope you benefited from it. If you haven't already picked up, um, David's books, at least a few of them, they're probably not all for you. You'd be a pretty unique person if every single one of them was right on for you, but that's part of what I think is great about them. In particular, I can highly recommend the two I've read mind management, not time management and the heart to start, stop procrastinating and start creating 
You can learn more about David at kdb.co or if writing is your thing, that website he just mentioned, hundredwordwritinghabit.com. And with that, um, thanks again for listening. Take care and I'll talk to you again next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.